Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that human beings are basically friendly, tribal animals who enjoy hanging out with one another. We enjoy doing all kinds of things together, from sewing circles to golfing, to watching sports games, to playing poker, to you name it. Just look at all the things we just love to do together, including starting businesses, including starting all kinds of cultural events. We are cooperative, collaborative animals, human beings. At the very same time, it's imperative that we stay aware of the fact that a very small percentage of us are very different. This very small percentage are predators, they're avaricious, and they believe in a very different form of government than we do. We believe in our democracy and our republic. We believe in one person, one vote, and that no one is above the law. These people do not agree with that. They believe that the leaders, very often dictators, are far above the law. They believe that we all should be their subjects, not their citizens. I grew up believing I'm in a democracy and a republic. It's part of my life, my entitlement. I get to live this way. I didn't realize that we have to work to maintain our democracy and our republic. It is not a given. It's important that we all stay aware. Even in these tough times financially, when so many of us are struggling to put food on the table, to pay the rent, to maintain jobs, we still must remain politically aware in order to keep our democracy and our republic. Please join me in that endeavor of staying awake at this very important time in history. In the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I'm very pleased to have with us John Buchanan, One of the things we're going to be talking about today is his book, Processing Reality. There are other things we're going to be talking to him about as well. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, John. I'm delighted to be here, Richard. Thank you. John, we're living in a troubled world right now, and there's a certain amount of fear in the the air again. We went for a long period of time when it appeared that the nuclear clock was not ticking. Now it appears that the nuclear clock is ticking again because Putin is making these, if not direct, veiled threats. We don't know about China and so on. What's your take on how that's affecting your psyche and the psyche of people that you associate with and that you converse with? Well, I I grew up in the first nuclear threat age. I was born in 53, so I was was there with the... uh... Bay of Pigs and the uh, and the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I think I'm somewhat inured to that kind of situation. I, I remember, um, do you know Joseph Campbell's comments about how you know we we say you know today we're facing dangers and that it's you know more than anyone else in the history. He says you know, but back three thousand years ago there'd be a little village 
and on the horizon they'd see a dust storm. And you know, was it just a dust storm or was it perhaps a raiding party who's going to come in and wipe out the entire village? So I think there's always been a sense of potential existential threat. So I, you know, I just try, try to do, you know, do what I can. I, I do think, though, that the fear in the country that seems continually exacerbated by the news and the Internet is a big problem for us dealing with these situations in, a, in as reasonable a manner as we can. Thank you for for that. I know it's a little off course of what we're going to be talking about, but you're a highly educated man, and I know you're a thinking man, and I wanted your opinion on that. And I'm going to ask your opinion on something else that I've been thinking about lately. It seems to me that there are two forces in the world that are colliding, that are, and they're they're antithetical. The one one force is what I call the social Darwinists. These are the people who believe in the old king of the hill kind of mentality. These are the people I referred to in my introduction who believe in dictatorships and who believe in the strongman rule. And I believe that there's a a big part of the world that they either lead or represent, and they would like to control the world. And I believe on the other side, there's a force meeting them that we might call the humanists. The humanists believe that we're all equal. The humanists have a tradition going back to the Stoic philosophers who believed that all of us are equal on this planet and and, and in the universe. And they would believe, as I do, by the way, that there's enough food and shelter and education and health care for everyone on the planet, and we don't leave anybody behind. And I believe these two forces are conflicting in this country, and also on the planet. Does that make any sense to you? What's your take on my thinking there? Yes, I, th- I think there's a, probably for a long time, there's been a, a small group of people that want mo- mo- most of it for themselves uh, versus you know, the large, the large uh, percentage of humanity that's just interested in their family and community in having a, a decent life with, and... Um, and that's, uh, I think, as with many other things, today has become even more, um, that, that distinction has been even more sharpened, more dramatically. Uh, you know, I fear that the United States also would like to have the one world economy where we're the primary directors of that. And, you know, China and Russia would kind of like to fill that position too, if possible. And, you know, the I, I think there's been sort of a, a mis- a misunderstanding of what a global community is. You know, it's not simply a, an economic system dominated by corporations who get to go everywhere freely doing what they want. You know, it should be a global sharing of resources and knowledge and, uh, and, and care, as you, as you put it, concern. You're a man who spends a significant amount of time in cognitive processing in your head and <laughs> thinking about things. What are the big ticket items on your radar screen in recent times? You mean besides what I write about? No, including very much what you write about. The big ticket items on your on your radar screen, including what you write about, of course. Well, probably my, although I, what, what I've been reading about probably the most in the last few years is really trying to understand the nature of the climate crisis combined with the other crises interact, the resource crisis, how the, the population crisis and, and where all of these are leading us and what possible 
solutions there might be in a short and long run. And um, it looks, you know, a lot of it is looks like we have to muddle through, but we, but we have to muddle through by taking action, as much action as possible, but deliberate action, you know, things that will really help, not things that look good or things that we hope might help. In your own personal life, as I've read in your book, Processing Reality, that's a plug. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> in, in your book, you talk about times in your life when you muddled, you had to sort of muddle through, and then you had, if not epiphanies, some startling things happened that, that gave you a leg up and gave you a way out, if you will, or perhaps a way in. Tell us a bit about your personal journey in that regard, John. Well, as you may remember, in, in the book, I, I mentioned five pivotal events that shaped my thinking and direction in my life. The, uh, the first being the very sudden death of my father when I was 11, which, you know, re re really threw me, of course, and uh, left me adrift and, you know, then entering into junior high, which is always tough. And, and so I was so doing my best to get along, but have, had a lot of, I'm sure, unexpressed grief and anxiety. And then the first, when I was, I guess, 14 or 15, I, I was at a wedding and uh, tried some champagne at uh, somebody's suggestion and found the enormous relief there and also found, discovered that I was somebody who likes a lot of that relief. And so I, you know, drank until I got sick. The relief from the severity of the pain from losing your dad? I don't think that was forefront in my consciousness, but or even, but I d did know I had an, you know, I was anxious and comfortable and nervous uh, a lot of the time. Although that probably wasn't even all that clear until that was suddenly removed. And you know, then suddenly I felt Ill, at, at ease and, you know, could enjoy myself and talk with people. And I, I think most people that have the kind of issues I do with alcohol discover the same thing. You're, you're suddenly okay again. Yes, suddenly okay. As I recall, your dad died two days after a celebration of some sort with him. Well, I had been, uh, I'd been taking uh, riding lessons and I went to my first horse show. And I guess uh, about a week before that, he'd gone up to the Mayo Clinic because uh, he'd gone to Madison. They hadn't found anything. And he went up to the Mayo Clinic to find out what might be going on because he wasn't feeling well. And when I came back, he was in the local hospital and they diagnosed him with lung cancer. And I went to see him on a Monday and I believe he, he died on the Wednesday. They, they'd given him six months, but they were wrong. As I recall, you brought him a purple ribbon that you had won at this event. Uh, you came in, what, eighth place? And you were very <laughs> yeah. happy, to, you were happy yeah. to share it with your dad, right? I was. You know, one of the things I'd hoped for my psychedelic journeys or my psychotherapy was that I could remember that last visit with him more closely. But, you know, despite my rigorous attempts to unlock those memories, that's remain. you know, I have a vague memory of it, but, you know, I'd like to have a crystal clear remembrance of, of that moment. So some years later, you were introduced to Champagne at this wedding, and then from there you drifted into more you tell us, and then how the psychedelics came into play, please. Having discovered that alcohol did this, you know, when I had the opportunity, I would continue to drink. And, and being here in Wisconsin, this is not unusual. I, th I think we're, at least at one point, I saw we were the, I think we consumed 80% of the brandy made in the world. <laughs> so it's, uh, we're, we're, we like to drink. So uh, 
you know, I was not alone, but I think it was, it was pretty obvious that my drinking was, a, was not normal, even by Wisconsin standards. Um, and I, I guess my senior year, I was finally able to f- find some marijuana, which I thought was exciting, and a few other pills. Um, but the real change was uh, after traveling uh, overseas for a few months after I graduated from high school. That was the trip you referenced with your sister? Yes. I, yeah. drank, I drank a lot in Spain. It was somewhat admonished by by the locals, which, you know, if you're being admonished for drinking in Spain, you know you're in trouble again. So, you know, we traveled quite a bit in Muslim countries. So I stopped drinking, but when we got to Afghanistan, uh, you know, there, there was quite a bit of, of opportunity for other things. And, uh, so, so I was smoking a lot of hashish and eating hashish and tried cocaine and, you know, thought these things were pretty marvelous. I think there's something about the quality that you know, ever since I was young, I, you know, I loved uh, fantasy. I loved, you know, hypnosis, magic, you know, science fiction. And, and taking these substances really seemed to be opening up a world that was somehow related to all of those things. When the, you're getting more and more in this story involved with various mind-altering substances, and you're getting more and more in personal difficulty as a result, correct? Well, I, I think if I just, if I'd you know, my senior year, we had a uh, foreign exchange student who looked older than he was, so he was able to buy us hard liquor at the at the uh, at the liquor store. And I, I think if he'd come a year a year earlier, I would have been in big trouble in high school. But you know, I managed to get through that. Um, I, I wasn't quite yet feeling the you know many of the physical issues. Um, but you know, I was driving while drinking and doing a lot of things that could have you know could have entailed big problems. Um, but I would say I didn't really run into more severe. The, the consequences, as with many of us, get more severe relatively quickly, but there was a few more years where I could get by with it. Okay, now take us back to the five events that you referenced. Well, the, yes, the third one was trying psychedelics, which I'd been hesitant to do back in Afghanistan, and I was rather dismissive that these would be you know, something special. Uh, and I'm sure I'd, I'd heard the you know news reports about LSD and you know people jumping out of windows. So so that I found that rather scary. But you know things change. And a friend offered me uh, some LSD, and I tried it. And I have to say it was the most amazing experience that I, I'd had up to that point in my life. It was uh, the things that I said about sort of mystery and magic and uh, new things emerging. You know, this was all that and more. And how old were you when you had this first psychedelic experience? I, I probably just turned 19, although I should correct that. The, um, the summer before I went abroad, uh, somebody had offered me some mescaline, which I had tried, which was, mm-hmm. which was a lot more fun. <laughs> you know, it was uh, not as a dramatic alteration. You know, I was enjoying eating and music and everything, just you know, more of a uh, sensory uh, kind of experience. But but you may remember at the end of the at the end of the morning when I was driving back from downtown, I suddenly had the feeling that I I didn't know how to move my hands and I was driving. So so that that could have been a consequence. But John, when I read that that you were driving in that state and you had people in the car, I got to say my stomach tightened up a little bit. Even <laughs> though it was I'm even though I'm reading a book and I know you came out all right. It was, uh, that, that was, an, uh, I don't know how to even describe what kind of a experience to be driving a car and uh, at some speed uh, 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 w- w- under the influence of a psychedelic. When I started at college, we went, we did some 
took some LSD and went to see, uh, I believe we went to see Fantasia, you know, which was playing locally in, in Sarasota. And we, I think there were about three or four other people in my car and we got in and they started saying, okay, who can drive now? Who can drive? Who's not, who's not high? And I said, look, you know, if you want to ride with me, that's fine. If you don't, uh, but I'm leaving. So I was, you know, was driving back uh, while tripping. And, you know, if, if one is not, if one is not uh, peaking or in a really strong state, then it's, it's, it's possible, although not advisable, I would say. Yeah, that's an, well put. Yeah, you were at New College. Rick Doblin went to New College also, had some quite some experiences there. Yeah, yeah, he started at the same time I did, so I, I knew him a little bit. Went to a party in his house one time, in this house that he had built, designed and built. He's quite remarkable, quite a remarkable fellow. He'd also yes. built a, a, a handball court uh, you know, at New College, and uh, is, is really, I, I, I stand in awe of what he's accomplished at MAPS. Yes, yes, we all do. Um, well, take us further along on your journey then, please, John. As you might remember, I had another experience later that spring where I was doing some LSD, and, and I suddenly had this vision that LSD opened up this experiential space that were, which of an overlapping of psychological, philosophical, and religious or mystical insight, just direct experience into those realms. And, but I didn't really know what that meant exactly. So I thought I should start studying those. So when I went off to college, I started studying all kinds of, you know, different areas of psychology and philosophy and some religion and history, trying to, trying to find a way to understand how these substances might work, what it would mean to say that what they reveal is real and what the implications would be for an, a, a larger worldview and the way we understand reality. Uh, so that's, but I had what, I, my fourth pivotal experience that fall when I took some LSD that a friend had brought down from the Northeast and it, and it turned out to be very powerful. And at, at one point I was back in my room and this, my girlfriend, friend who was a girl, <laughs> sat me down, put on the side two of Abbey Road, put her hand on my chest and I really just took off and, and this kind of things opened up for me visually and emotionally. And it was a, a very powerful experience that uh, the peak of which was me feeling as if I was moving towards this brilliant, brilliant light that was in, involved a conscious entity, supreme conscious entity of some sort. I w couldn't discern until I really got there and wasn't able to penetrate all the way into it successfully. And, and we actually felt very depressed for a few days afterward that I'd, I'd failed in attaining whatever that would have been some sense of, you know, full union or, or full connection with that and, and what it was about. So this was your fourth pivotal experience. Yes. At, at this point, we might say now the consequences began to catch up with me as I was dropping out of college every other term. And then I'd sort of pull myself together, do a term, but then I wouldn't think I could do it. And, uh, and I, I was arrested for public drunkenness and stealing a can of corn at a convenience store. <laughs> sort of stupid things like this. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so, so, you know, but I kept going in and out, kept studying, you know, these areas, finding a lot of interesting ideas, but none of which were quite everything that I was looking for. Um, transferred up to Green Bay, where probably this is where my drinking was, got, got to be the worst. Uh, and the and and you know the drug use sort of went down and, and the effectiveness. I, I think when when brain, when's brain gets that 
uh, sort of worn out chemically. That it's harder and harder for for interesting experiences to arise with the use of these substances. Uh, and eventually things I, things got very bad, and I started going in and out. I went to see a doctor, and he gave me a glucose tolerance test because I was under the my hypothesis was that maybe I was uh, you know glucose intolerant or something, and it ended up with him saying you know, you got to get some help basically. So I went in and out of a local hospital a few times, and was you know sort of trying to do something, and then finally ended up at a, a real treatment center first in Iowa, and then they transferred me up to Hazelden. And that was that was really the beginning of my uh, sobriety. Although I had another fairly lengthy re- relapse of a couple of years before ending up at the Benny Ford Center and and really starting long term sobriety, which is now in its in its fourth decade. Yeah, I think you know that I spent a significant portion of my lengthy career in chemical dependence. I, I don't know if you do know that. I, I might have seen. I was trying to read up in your past a little bit, but I, I couldn't find a good enough source to really give me everything. I, I know you've done a ton of things. Well, I, I started a program called Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program, and it was perhaps the the country's first uh, holistic health uh, chemical dependence treatment program because I brought in. Uh, this is going back uh, 30 some odd years, I brought in many modalities for holistic treatment. For example, I, I, uh, I taught them yoga, but we called it stretching because drug yeah. addicts and alcoholics would never do yoga. Uh, I taught them meditation, and I called it mind clearing because they would never do meditation, of course. You know, aerobics was called exercise Nutrition training was called fuel ingestion, and uh, and then a lot of of of, of individual and group therapy uh, and more. And um, so th- th- your story, you know, has a, a, you know a, a, that kind of a personal you know, personal connection to me. And of course, the treatment centers that you went to are are famous, but they're also famous for having extremely low uh, success rates including Hazelden and including Betty Ford. And uh, that's something I want to ask you about, because one of the problems professionally that I've had with both Hazelton, uh, a very famous alcohol treatment program uh, in the Midwest, and actually a, almost a pioneering program, and uh, I think it was, and, um, and, and also Betty Ford, one, one of my uh, professional problems with them is I've run into many patients, I'll use Betty Ford as an example, who fly into Betty Ford from all over the country, if not the world, and have a very positive experience at Betty Ford. And then they get on an airplane, and the stewardess asks them if they'd like a drink, and they start drinking on the plane as they're leaving. Because Betty Ford, I don't know what they're doing now, but historically, they never filled in the gap between the residential treatment and the ongoing week-in and week-out treatment that needs to come after the residential treatment, because very few people get cured in a 28-day program. There's a lot of work to do, just like very few people get all the cure that they need from a psychedelic experience, because there's now what we call integration that needs to go on, and integration can take months, if not years, depending on the nature of the psychedelic experience. So I'm when I read that you went to Hazelden and then you relapsed, you know, for a lengthy period of time, I was wondering was, had they set up anything for you when you left Hazelden 
that you immediately went into for your ongoing week-in and week-out support, or how was that handled? Actually, they did, they did send me to a halfway house, which I was at for several weeks and then left against recommendation. I, um, I was sober probably for about 16 months. I went to 12-step programs and went to meetings. Um, and it wasn't until I stopped doing that that I relapsed. So I, I think perhaps you're being a little too hard on Hazelton and Betty Ford. The, in my, when I was there, they, I don't know if I forget, I think I mentioned this in my book because I thought it was funny. Um, at Betty Ford, I was talking to a, a woman came in and wanted to talk with me at some point and was asking me about how I, how I was and how I, you know, how I felt about how I looked. And, and I, I thought she was concerned that I had bad body image, you know, had low self-esteem. So I was saying, I'm fine. And, Finally, I came out there worried about the fact that I, you know, weighed about 120 pounds. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> word. And they thought maybe I was anorexic. And I said, no, I'd be happy to put on weight. It's just that, you know, I was living so in such a bad way that I've lost all this weight. So my, my primary uh, treatment goal was to put on weight. <laughs> yes. So I, there was nutritionists. They, I mean, there were people, um, I, I think they were trying to do, I mean, this is, a, it was, this is when it was only two years in operation. But they hadn't put in their gymnasium, you know, their workout area yet. But I think they were attempting to do a, a wider, perhaps not as uh, broad a uh, program as as you were attempting to, you know, incorporate with mind, body, spirit. But they were they were aiming in that direction, and they, I mean, they also sent quite a few people off to halfway houses or to like six months, you know, programs afterwards. If they, you know, especially younger people who they didn't feel had support systems back home to reinforce their sobriety. And they always, you know, emphasized the necessity of an ongoing AA or NA attendance. So I, so I don't think it's quite as hard, you know, as... Quite as uh, harsh, not as, as drop-off. As unsupportive as, as it might appear to some, you know. And, and there are people that do that. They get on a plane, but, you know, they shouldn't have... <laughs> they probably should, you know, listen about getting a sponsor and going to a meeting and... You know, you know, I did. I also did a year of of weekly aftercare. Actually, what I did ah. was I did six weeks of inpatient. I came back and did six weeks of outpatient. Then I did a year of weekly aftercare. Yes, and, and and lived. I lived out in that area for a couple of years and developed a whole community in in you know people who'd been going through the center and were involved in recovery. All of oh, which, you stayed in you. You stayed in the Palm Springs area for a year and a half. Yep. Initially, I got a, I rented oh. a, a, a condominium with a friend who was in treatment, and uh-huh. unfortunately, I came home one day and he was freebasing. So I I ended up getting a place of my own, uh, renting a place, and uh, that, that's when I started going over to uh, over to Claremont and studying with the Whiteheadians over there. That's the next part of your journey, isn't it? When you left Betty Ford and started. Working with what you call the white headians, <laughs> yes, huh? the process people, yes, yeah. The uh, at the Claremont School of Theology and the Claremont Graduate School, there were some of the top experts in process philosophy and theology, and you know, sort of centered around Alfred North Whitehead's philosophy of organism. And I had at Emory that just before I, well, the semester before I came out to uh, out to the Betty Ford Center, I uh, my advisor had recommended that I do a directed study on Whitehead with a professor there who was an expert in that area and retiring at the end of the year. And so I did this directed study in White, Alfred with Whitehead and other process philosophy thinkers, uh, Hart, Hartsorn and John Cobb and David Griffin 
and found that his his metaphysics and cosmology were able to give a worldview that I thought could account for psychedelic experiences better than anything that I've in, that I've run into and integrate them into a scientific worldview as, as well as one that uh, one that you can live a worldview that you can live everyday life you know is also brought into the picture so you know in other words it would as uh, as I think Whitehead says something to the fact that you know a uh, a metaphysics uh, needs to be able to account for all experience and then he goes on experience awake, experience asleep, experience drunk, experience sober, experience scientific, experience religious. And, you know, and if, if it doesn't do that, it's, it's inadequate. I know this is a tough question, but I, 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 I'm compelled to ask it. Give us a short course on process philosophy and, 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 and give us a connected to that, a short course on what you're referring to as Whitehead's processing uh, philosophy. Tough question. I know it. N normally, I refer people to other books. Good introductions. <laughs> I know. But now you're on the spot. Everybody's listening. The whole yeah. world's listening. <laughs> but it's your chance to shine. Well, thank you for the <laughs> for, thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> you know the process uh, the pr process approach. You know is probably rooted or most most uh, or it, it, the furthest back we would, would go would be to Heraclitus who has the, you know, you never step into the same river twice. And, you know, then the rejoinder is, and, and your foot is never the same twice that you put into that river. Uh, and it's somewhat along the lines of also of Buddhism or Taoism, where, there's, where the process of things and experiential flow is more primary than the notion of uh, objects. You know, the, the Western... The Western view, since Descartes, tends to have these human experiences in a world of objects, whereas the process perspective is more of an experiential flow based on relationships and feeling, interconnected flows of feeling and relationship, which, interestingly enough, describes the quantum quantum theory of events. Basically, you know, the events are these momentary uh, events that uh, somehow or other combine the influence of the past into a new event, which then becomes part of the onward flow of electromagnetic events that you know inform the next ones. And and that basic idea of a flow of interconnected events, uh, connected directly, as they would say, from you know from the inside, rather than objects being connected by bouncing together like billiard balls. It creates a very different picture of the universe, one that's organis organismic rather than mechanical, which uh, is a huge shift. It it really connects with Seneca and a lot of the Stoic philosophers, who essentially were saying very similar things that that everything material really doesn't count. That really, what it's about is the present moment and what's going on inside and between us and the other person. You know. John Cobb ha and he has a book called uh, Beyond Dialogue, where he's actually in dialogue with Buddhist thought and, uh, and, and process perspective. And one thing he says that I like a lot in there is, you know, with the Buddhist idea that there are these independent moments of now, uh, you know, which are all that exists. He says, well, that, that's true, but those, those nows are, are constituted out of past nows. So there's this, you know, you know, what, what, when I'm having it now, I'm also 
have, I have memories of the past and I'm also thinking about the future at times. So these momentary, this living in the now is also one that's to be, you know, I, and I, I like this to be to living in the now is to be t- taking account of all the possibilities from one's past experience, as well as directing oneself towards future possibilities. I relate to that personally and philosophically with regard to everything in my life experience is affecting my now, and my now is totally living with John Buchanan. And I don't, <laughs> yes. and I, I don't have any other life than my life with John Buchanan. And I believe that John Buchanan does not have any other life than living with Richard Miller at this point. I do understand that everything that John Buchanan and Richard Miller bring to the moment in this very moment has a connection to the past and has been affected by the past. What I don't resonate to is how that relates to the future, because the only way that I can know the future while I'm here in the present with John Buchanan, is if I leave John and I go off in my head. And then I'm not totally in the moment anymore. I'm sort of in the moment, but I'm sort of not in the moment because I'm fantasizing or ruminating or cognating the future. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that that would be, uh, I mean, that would still be happening in the now, but that's not quite what I, I mean by thinking about the possibilities for the future. Ah. What, I, what I'm thinking about here is that as I'm talking, I'm also sort of hoping and aiming the ideas I'm presenting that, that they will, other people will hear these ideas and benefit by them and become interested in them. So part of how I'm talking now is with a purpose which is directed towards a goal. It's, it's goal-directed, purpose-directed, which in a sense is that, that will have something that will happen in the future. But for, you know, for process philosophy, the future, you know, they have a very simple thought of what, t- what the time is. You know, the past is what has occurred, is actualized events. The moment is the event that's unfolding now. And the future are events that have not yet happened. So it's... Um, you know, if, if I'm if I'm thinking concretely, you know, I, I do know exactly what you mean, though, because you know, one of the first times I took psychedelics, one of the beautiful things was was suddenly I was I think fully present, and it was like, wow, you know, I'm really here, and then I can connect with people, and and you know, this whole world is really kind of me, you know, and somehow or other, and it was such a different way of uh, of being. It was it was a wonderful is. I think it's helped me be that way more without psychedelics and, and live that way more fully in my life. Are you implying that the way you're talking to me in this now, because it has some intent of people hearing it in the future, is different from the way you'd be speaking with me if we were sitting and having coffee and nobody else would ever hear it again? A little bit, although if if it was just you and me, I'd be I'd be aiming more towards you you personally, what what I know about you and your background. Whereas now I'm thinking a little bit more broad. You know, I'm not really even consciously doing it, but I, I think at some level I'm aiming to be more broadly understood. And yet, you believe by within that aiming, you're still able to be fully present. You see where I'm going there. You know, the aiming sounds like it's taking you away a bit somewhere. 
it's not something I'm thinking about. You know, this is a, uh-huh. sort of, this is more of a metaphysical analysis. You know, I, uh-huh. I, I'm not consciously aware of the of the past and the world flowing into me, except under some psychedelic states or meditative states. One can become, you know, aware of things much more vividly. You know, Stan Groff talks about that. That you know, within psychedelic in non ordinary states, you know, you don't just remember the past. You can actually, you know, you relive it. You reconnect with it directly. And that that would be a, a Whiteheadian point of view that the past is still accessible to directly experience that these feelings and events versus that they're somehow stored in the brain and we somehow act, you know, activate some neurons and it kind of brings up a simulation of what happened. One of the things you mention in your book, Processing Reality, everybody, that <laughs> is that <laughs> is that you believe that as much as you've gotten benefit from psychedelic substances, you believe that there are ways to achieve that same state of consciousness without ingesting the particular substances. And I'd like to hear more of your thinking on that topic. As you may remember, I did part of a three-year training group with Stan and Christina Groff and Holotropic Breathwork. Yes. And, the, and, and for me, the experiences were not as powerful as with the psychedelic, some of the experiences I had with psychedelics. But they were certainly par- you know, strong or powerful, not ordinary experiences or holotropic experiences, as Stan likes to call them uh, themselves. And I and and for some people, they're more they'd be uh, you know that I was with. They were more powerful than psychedelic experiences they've had. There was one one man I met who had been at at Esalen and gone there and done a holotropic you know breath breath work with Stan back in the day. And he said he had this he had the most powerful experience, you know, not ordinary experience that he'd ever had. And he said he was he was walking around at Esalen, and and some people like came up and kind of like knelt knelt down in front of him and were kind of like you know in in awe of the energy that he was e- emitting. So I I, I so the, yeah, and you know there's other ways of course also meditation you know sensory deprivation tank you know like John Lilly did and uh, there's all kinds of ways of you know rich some you know some people some you know my my. Uh, uh, ex-wife is able to just go to, you know, go to sup, uh, you know, lie down after, uh, do the corpse position after yoga class and, uh, take off and have experiences that were, you know, were powerful than most of my psychedelic experiences. Ex-wives is another story. I had an ex-wife <laughs> who lived most of the time in another world, but that not, and it had nothing to do with psychedelics. <laughs> for, but better, gonna... for, for better or worse. <laughs> Yeah, we're not. We better not go down that rabbit hole. Um, we know historically that people have been working at changing their consciousness uh, from the beginning of time without substances, and now we're learning that from that same beginning of time they were also using substances. Yeah, you know, right? The Greeks and the Romans, and going back, that they were doing both. And are you personally? You don't have to answer this question, by the way. You're welcome to say I decline to answer. But are you personally continuing your experimentation with psychedelics? I have not. I'd say every year I think about it. You know, would that be helpful for me? Would that be an interesting thing to do? And, you know, I still think about it. You know, I've, I've finished my book. You know, now I have a little more leeway of what, a little more freedom from, you know, what I want to be doing. Um, but I have not. Um, Mostly because I, well, one thing is in the past, whenever I started taking one substance, 
it eventually led to me abusing other substances. Um, you know, some people that might not be a problem for, but, you know, my history dictates that that's what happened to me. Um, although, you know, I, I do think psychedelics are, are different in that, you know, might not be the case. Maybe, that, you know, I could. But there's also a, a big concern for me that it might disrupt my sense of uh, community in the 12-step community, in the self, self, self in 12 steps, uh, meetings and program. And, and that, you know, that's very important to me. And I would, I would hate to put that at risk. In 1985, I was invited to a special seminar at Esalen. And that's where I met Rick Doblin. And I was brought there because I was right in the middle of my Coke Enders alcohol and drug program. And the question that the group had for me was the appropriateness of psychedelics for people who were dealing with chemical dependence problems. And the answer that I gave them is almost identical to your position right now. I said, the problem is it will do a lot of good for a lot of them, but there's an unknown percentage of them that will use the particular psychedelic or, or mind-altering substance experience as a road back into their own addiction. And we're going to put those people at risk. We don't know who they are, and we don't know what percentage of the population of recovering people they represent. And so it would, it's a, it, it would not be a, 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 a responsible uh, a form of treatment to apply. And now I talk sometimes to people who I treated 35 years ago that I'm still in touch with, who are still clean and sober, and I ask them this very question because now they're thinking about the possibility of perhaps microdosing or maybe doing some psilocybin, and the very same question comes up that you just related to. And for the most part, they all agree with you, and they agree with what I said in 85, that the risk isn't worth it because their, their experience is such that when they open the door, all kinds of unwanted guests come, in, come into play. And I've got a great life, you know, so it's, I, I hate, to, hate to put that at risk. Yes, yes, indeed. You know, indeed. The, 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 the microdosing I might be particularly nervous about because you'd be taking it regularly, you know, which is the problem in the first place. Exactly, it, it, exactly. Sometimes we go to an event, a party, a gathering, a lecture, something where we've been talking and interacting with other people and having a vibrant conversation. And then we leave and we get in our car and we're driving away or we get home and three thoughts pop into our head and say, darn, I wish I would have said that. Right now, I'm going to pause or ask you to pause, even though pausing isn't really thought highly of when you're on the, on the internet, you know, on broadcasting. Because every everybody on broadcasting hates dead. They call it dead time. They're, everybody's deathly afraid that if there's nobody talking or saying anything, uh, people will just switch off. They'll leave right away. But we're going to do it anyway. And we're going to pause. And I'm going to ask you to go inside and give some consideration to what you might want to add to this conversation that you hadn't thought of or that I didn't ask you about. So please take that pause. And, and, and while you're doing that, I'll, um, I'll throw in a commercial to give you some time. Uh, the commercial is um, go to mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and check out our website. We archive all the programs. There's some great stuff for you to listen to. You can enjoy listening anytime, anywhere, just by 
putting it on your your uh, your phone or your computer. And so uh, join me in that. And when you when you listen, if you have a question or you want to make a comment, uh, send send us an email. Uh, send it to info at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Uh, info at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll correspond with you. Back to John Buchanan. When you asked me to be on the program and mentioned the use of psychedelics with terminal patients, I looked back at some of Stan Groff's uh, research in, in, at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center. And a couple of the things that uh, st- stood out for me was the, uh, we mentioned the, the benefit of being a, a therapist working with terminal patients with psychedelics and how powerful that is and transformative for the therapists themselves. And he also talks about how, how important it can be for the families of, of the terminal patient to have the opportunity to ha- have them to be with the patient after they've had this, before and after they've had the psychedelic experience because it can you know, open up communication so much better. Um, I, didn't ha- I didn't hear that mentioned in your conversation with Osis or Bosis. And I just I wanted to throw those things in for for one thing. The particular emphasis on including the uh, family. Well, just how beneficial it can be for the family and yes. for the, and for the patient. Yes, it, it you know can help so much with dealing with the loss. You know, he said often there's a lot of things hit. You know, they they don't want to talk about the patient dying. The patient doesn't want to talk about it because it it might be upsetting. And a lot of opportunities are, you know can be lost for closure and for, you know, you know, like what I didn't get with my father to be, to, you know, have a no, I was saying goodbye and have that opportunity, which I, I think could be very helpful for people. That's a very astute point, John. Thank you. I will tuck that away and make sure I bring it into, into play, both in my own professional work and in my interviews. I was also thinking about um, when you brought up the, the heaven and hell in your conversation with him and the church using that as a manipulation device. I, w- I was thinking, well, you know, also the, the, the images of hell and the experiences of hell also seem to emerge in not ordinary states spontaneously in Groff's work and in Buddhist mythology and uh, descriptions. So I was wondering how much the church drew upon experiential elements in their development of these ideas of heaven and hell. Versus more of a you know more of a theoretical manipulative tool, and and if I could add you know one one of the things I I, I thought was fascinating when I was reading some of David Griffin's writings about the history of the, of how the mechanistic uh, materialist uh, philosophy came to dominate Western science and uh, and civilization was that when De, when Descartes I you know I, I I don't know if most viewers would would have known this because I didn't. But when De- Descartes was, you know, came up with his uh, dualistic philosophy, there was, you know, there's also, you know, Newton and uh, Boyle and, and Boyle, a, a number of other prominent uh, scientists and philosophers had a much more animistic, you know, understanding with uh, action at a distance and uh, and nature being, you know, seeing as or- organic and alive, and and it, the church w- through its weight behind through Father Marcel in particular through its weight behind Descartes, because they did not want there to be a possibility of parapsychological powers and animism, because it would those could be used to explain away Jesus's miracles, which was the, the major evidence of Jesus being the Son of God, as well as uh, 
leverage, you know, their idea of that, um, you know, if the body isn't distinct from the, from the brain, if, you know, or the soul, if there isn't this dualism, then the soul probably isn't going to exist after death, in which case they will not have heaven and hell as a threat. So, so the, you know, ironically, the church was the one that pushed the Descartes, you know, position, which ended up with this materialist position, which has eroded the churches, you know, to the, you know, authority and, uh, and, and, you know, their viability. So there's a great irony in the history of it all. Dr. Tom Roberts uh, told me yesterday, and I thought it was a very, a point well taken, that he thought that we've conflated the psychedelic experience of death with real death. And that because those of us who've experienced ego death have also experienced being alive after ego death, we know what it feels like. It feels like a disembodied consciousness without materialism. And so what Tom pointed out is that we have applied that to our belief about death itself so that it, we end up thinking, well, since we died and had ego death and it felt so much like dying and we're still alive with psychedelics, that points to some evidence that when we die, literally, we're still going to be around. You follow that line of thinking that Thomas is pointing out. I thought that was, that he says we're conflating the two. And that, I thought that was a, a very interesting point that he made. You know, I, I mean, I, I think that's true that we don't know j just because we survived e ego death doesn't mean we, we, we know that we'll survive. Uh, you know, physical death. But on the other hand, it, it does give us an intuition that the mechanistic, materialistic idea that we have to die because our brain produces consciousness but might not be the, the truth. There might be another possibility. You know, have you seen David Griffin's book, uh, Parapsychology, Philosophy, and Spirituality? I haven't. I'm writing it down as you speak. I would, I would recommend that very highly. One, because it's a wonderful introduction to Whiteheadian thought on, on the mind-body uh, mind problem. But more particularly, he, what he wants to, what he's looking at is, is it, you know, if you were to survive death, if you couldn't sort of communicate with others and do things, it, it, you know, it, it might be kind of a drag, you know. So, so, <laughs> so you know, our, it would, you know, so he's looking at telepathy and psychokinesis to see, you know, to see if there's good evidence that these things uh, exist, so or out of and out of body experiences. So, so he looks at uh, let's see, seances um, or mediumistic experiences, uh, out of body experiences, apparitions, reincarnation, and one other thing. And he does a wonderful uh, analysis of the evidence for all of these things, and and you know which which ones he thinks constitute you know solid evidence. For the for the possibility of the or of these phenomena happening, and he concludes, especially his re, his look at you know, he looks into reincarnation, which becomes very complicated because if you have the super psi hypothesis, which is that you can access anything in the past psychically, then how would you differentiate between you know somebody saying, oh, I can remember these things, you know, I must have been reincarnated, from them just remembering someone else's life. And he does an incredible job of parsing out evidence that, you know, substantiate one perspective more than another. But he does, he concludes at the end that four of these five uh, phenomena that he's looking at present strong evidence, you know, that, that these, that for out-of-body existence or the, or the use of out-of-body and the use of, uh, you know, parapsychological powers 
and that together they produce they present even stronger evidence. And he also mentioned something else, which I think is fascinating. He said, "Well, and maybe that you know maybe you have your choice. You know, maybe when you die, if you've had enough, that could be the end. But other people may want to go on to other reincarnations. Other people might want to, you know, join in in union with God." And I thought I never thought about that. <laughs> we have a lot of choices in life, and maybe there's choices in death too. I like that one a lot, John. I, most of my life, believed that death was like going to sleep without dreaming, and that was it. Then I had a psychedelic experience where I saw my spirit, if you will, leave my body and go up out into space and join what I saw as a pink Mobius strip of souls. And I saw my own spirit joined this Mobius strip floating through the universe. And then I saw at various times droplets came out of this Mobius strip towards Earth. And I had the sense that these little droplets were life forces that were coming back to Earth towards procreation. And as a result of that experience, I no longer kept to my belief system that it's going to sleep without dreaming, and it opened up the possibility that for me, which I now have, that there is something more. And I really, now I'm going to integrate what you just taught me, and that, yes, there's the possibility of something more if we so choose it. And some of us may, and some of us may not. I like choice. I like options. And, and I, lo- I love that experience. That's, I've never heard one quite like that, that you know, the, the Mobius strip and the dripping. That, that's fabulous. It was, it was a very beautiful experience. Yeah, that's I've, a- had, I've had many beautiful experiences with psychedelics, and uh, they've stood me in good stead. I'm 84, and I continue to, uh, to experiment with them. Mm. And, uh, and, and I continue to learn, which I'm very pleased with. Okay, you, you've, you've finished your assignment. You, you told me what it was you'd be thinking about if you, that you hadn't said, and I thank you. So, thank you. John Buchanan, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today on this program. I appreciate it. The program will be archived. You'll be able to hear it. You'll be able to share it with your friends. Well, thank you. It's been delightful. It's, it's been a pleasure getting to know you. Well, thank you very much. We can continue, indeed. I hope so. For the rest of our lives here on this earth, and if we choose, maybe in the hereafter. I look forward to that. (laughs) Okay. And dear listeners, thank you all for joining us today on this series that we're doing, now including John Buchanan and his recent book, Processing Reality, which you can find on the internet. I look forward to being with you again. Please remember my invitation that if you hear something or read something on this program, I'd like you to communicate with me. Let's get something going back and forth. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm